Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your flesh-covered skeleton, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode will include killer seekers, internet demons, and cosmic clowns. Let's journey down into the sewers together and chit-chat about some scary movies. Number one, Ready or Not, 2019, directed by Matt Benatelli-Olpin and Tyler Gillette. Yar, there be spoilers ahead, matey. Ugh, spoiler beard, why are you still here? I can handle the spoiler warning myself. Oh, I see how it is. Old spoiler beard will leave and cry himself to sleep. <sighs> fine. Do the thing. Haha, <laughs> if you don't want Ready or Not spoiled, skip to... 7 minutes 29 seconds. Yeah, did the thing. Now get out of here. Yar. Sorry about that. I I hate that guy. Anyways, Grace and Alex are getting married. Alex comes from the Ludomus family who are wealthy from making games. After the ceremony, Grace has to play a game to join the family. Grace draws hide-and-seek, which means the family has to capture her and complete a ritual before dawn, or they will all die. In the past, one of the Lou Domuses made a deal with a guy named Lou Bale, who turned out to be the devil. Alex helps keep Grace alive, while the rest of the family hunts her. Grace almost escapes, but is captured. Alex's brother Daniel tries to drug the family during the ritual, giving Grace another chance to escape. Grace kills Alex's mom in self-defense, and a fire is started. This causes Alex to turn on Grace. The ritual isn't finished by dawn, so the family members start exploding. Grace sees Lubale, who gives her a nod. Grace then exits the mansion and sits on the steps as it goes up in flames behind her. The Ludomus family and Lubale are the killers. At least one innocent kid dies due to the ritual not being completed, and Lubel is in charge of the blood explosion the kid receives. I didn't mention that Ready or Not starts in the past. We see Kid Daniel give up a groom's location. We find out the groom pulled the hide-and-seek card and was married to the spooky ant character, who eventually accepted that the ritual had to be done and participates in hunting Grace in the present. Kooky Ant might be the best character in Ready or Not. Her ho-hum demeanor and styling makes the ant hilarious, even when she's just sitting quietly in a chair. Or maybe brown-haired niece who has a drug problem and accidentally kills multiple maids is the best character. Or Daniel, solely because he's played by Seth Cohen. Or Grace, due to Samara Weaving's amazing on-screen presence. Characters are one of the biggest strengths of Ready or Not. The ones I didn't mention aren't nearly as memorable as the fun characters though. 
What about the actual acting? Andy McDowell, probably best known for Groundhog Day, plays the mom and gives a wooden, emotionless performance. Henry Cerny plays the dad and he's a little better. Samara is definitely the standout actor. Seth Cohen, uh, Adam Brody, does a fine job playing the one character he always plays. I liked Melanie Scrofano's performance as the druggy brown-haired niece. I'll only refer to her as that since that's how the kooky aunt refers to her. Alex is played by Mark O'Brien, and I wasn't a fan of him. I think that's probably because of how his character was written. Alex loves Grace and wants to help her escape the death ritual. Okay. Thing is, he knew there was a chance that Grace would pull hide-and-seek. If you were going to help her escape, why not warn her beforehand? Allegedly, Grace pressured Alex into proposing. Why don't you tell the girl you intend to marry that she has a chance of being hunted by your satanic family after the wedding if y'all get married? Maybe if you knew Grace for more than a year and a half, you could easily explain your satanic family's deadly rituals to her and hammer the point home that marriage is a title that could lead to death for a potential ludomus. Alex turning on Grace because she kills his mom does make sense, I guess. I'm happy that Seth Cohen ends up being the good brother. He's the best. It's neat that Grace's wedding dress turns progressively more red throughout the movie. Sure, most of the red is applied at the very end, when the family members start exploding into bloody messes. The blood explosions look fantastic. I'm pretty sure they were done with a mixture of CGI and practical effects. Seeing Ready or Not's amazing blood explosions made me hate the awful ones that happened during the new Suspirius climax even more. If Ready or Not ended with the family not being horrifically killed by a satanic force, I would definitely be panning this movie. So I'm glad they went with the satanic stuff is totes real angle. As for the rest of the gore, it's decent. I wish some things were a little more front and center, like when the kooky ant decapitates a maid to put her out of her misery after she takes a crossbow bolt to the neck. Another maid dies after being shot in the head. A jerk kid shoots a bullet through Grace's hand, which leads to a yeesh scene with a nail. Seth Cohen is shot in the neck. Mom's face gets bashed in by Grace, and the aftermath is gnarly. I still would have liked a little more on-screen gore. Two things I didn't love in Ready or Not were the dialogue and the camera work. The dialogue has a bunch of out-of-place f-bombs that really hurt the flow of the dialogue and makes it sound unnatural. There are a ton of sequences that I'm assuming were shot by hand without any sort of stabilizer because there is some crazy camera shake. This is a multi-million dollar film. Buy yourselves a stabilizer. If the shaky cam was a stylistic choice, it was a bad one. Overall, Ready or Not is a fun time that you should definitely check out. It's not perfect, but I guarantee you'll get some enjoyment out of it if you're a horror fan. Fun fact, Samara Weaving is Hugo Weaving's niece. Number 2, Psycho Cop, 1989, directed by Wallace Potts. Two newlyweds end up at a ritual murder site and are killed by a psycho cop. Three couples head to a vacation home. They meet a groundskeeper who is promptly murdered by the cop. The cop starts killing off the couples. Actual cops show up and are killed. One couple makes it out alive after shooting Psycho Cop multiple times and throwing a tree branch through his torso. 
we learn that the cop's name is Joe Vickers, who's really a discharged mental patient named Gary Henley, but actually is a serial killer named Ted Warnicky. Vickers Henley Warnicky then looks into the camera and smiles, showing that he's still alive. Psycho Cop is the killer. I'm just going to call him Psycho Cop. Sorry, Mr. Three Names. There's no reason for him to have three names. It's so stupid in a good way. Psycho Cop is definitely a self-aware movie. For example, one of the characters is a girl who is literally always brushing her hair. The only time she's on screen and not brushing her hair is when she's complaining about someone stealing the brush. I asked Kat if she wanted to watch Psycho Cop, and she responded, You mean cop? Zing. Got him. Nothing else I say in this section will top that joke. Everyone has seen The Office, right? If you have, there's a good chance you've seen Psycho Cop. Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration, is Psycho Cop. Robert R. Schaefer, to be exact. I really like his hammy performance and line delivery as the dastardly keeper of the piece. Er, cutter into pieces? I told you the rest of the jokes in this section would bomb. Schaefer's one-liner delivery is perfect, even though barely any of the one-liners make any sense. I want to believe they were horribly written on purpose because the out-of-context one-liners are hilarious. All the dialogue delivery is ridiculous. All of the acting is absolutely camptastic. One of my favorite characters is Zack. Throughout the movie, someone would say something like, This concerning thing happened. And Zack would respond, Oh, come on, that's nothing to worry about. Before my eyes gazed upon Psycho Cop, they had the pleasure of viewing Psycho Cop Returns, which I've been quoting, though incorrectly, ever since. In Psycho Cop Returns, there's a part where a lady asks a guy why two other girls aren't dressed, which he responds with, They're dressed, they're just dressed scantily. Psycho Cop Returns is better than the first, but the original Psycho Cop is still a fun time. It's a complete turn-your-brain-off slasher that a slasher-making machine could have spit out. But sometimes, that's all I'm looking for. Brain breaks are necessary every now and then. The gore in Psycho Cop isn't anything to write home about. The best gore is when P-Cop pulls out one of the real cops' hearts, but even the heart removal isn't impressive. I guess P-Cop having a branch thrown through its torso is pretty fun. The guy that tossed the branch must be stupid strong. Peacock has some supernatural abilities which do actually make sense. He can teleport and survive mortal wounds. How? He's made a deal with the devil of course. Yeah, not only is Peacock a psycho, he's also a devil worshipper. This isn't played up a ton, but you do see parts of a ritual in the beginning, and Peacock draws a pentagram in the dirt with his finger when he shows up at the vacation house. Psycho Cop is a by-the-book slasher that drags a bit towards the end as Peacock chases the last couple through the woods. It's still a competent, fun slasher, even though it is in no way groundbreaking. While I enjoyed the movie, I actually recommend jumping to Psycho Cop Returns instead. It's the stronger of the two movies, and the office setting of two is a lot more fun. Number 3, The Hills Have Eyes, 2006, directed by Alexandra Aja. An old man at a gas station in the desert tells a family on vacation about a dirt road shortcut. The family takes the shortcut. 
A spike strip put on the road causes the car to crash and break an axle. People living in the hills start messing with the family. One of the family's German shepherds is killed. The dad walks back to the gas station and sees the old man kill himself. The dad is kidnapped, lit on fire, and used as a distraction. The hill people murder a bunch of the family members. They also steal a baby. The remaining family members and German Shepherd kill all the men in the Hill People family with the help of a Hill daughter that wanted out. The Hill People are the killers. I'm counting the old man at the gas station as a Hill person this time since unlike the original, he doesn't warn the family. He sends them to their death. I wanted to copy and paste my summary for the original and leave it at that, but I realized there are quite a few differences. The Hills Have Eyes remake has a whole section where the stolen baby's dad, Doug, finds an old nuclear testing town where the Hill people live. Doug and Beast, the German Shepherd that doesn't die, pet warning, the other one dies, and even though you see the dog carcass more in this remake, it looks like a stuffed animal, since it wasn't real like the originals. Also, the bird death happens still, and is elongated. The head's bitten off, then the hill person drinks the blood out of the poor thing like it's a Capri Sun without a straw. Doug and Beast spend the last third of the movie goofing around in the hill person town. There are a lot more hill people this time around. I say a lot more, but in actuality, about two times more. More hill people, more kills for Doug. Beast gets the same amount of kills. Bobby and Brenda still set up the exploding trailer trap, and this time Brenda kills the victim who barely survives that trap. There was no reason for the duo to blow up the trailer this time. Bobby has a gun with a full magazine and a half's worth of ammo. The hill person that ends up exploded sees Bobby and jogs towards him. All Bobby had to do was post up, aim, and fill the hill man with lead. Instead, Bobby runs away and fires behind him wildly as he bolts. It's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. The Hillman isn't shown to be impervious to bullets or anything, so it makes no sense for Bobby not to at least try to land some shots on the Hillman. The Hills Have Eyes remake does have some better gore than the original. I expected that going in since Alexandra Aja is the director. He did a great job with the gore in High Tension and Piranha 3D. For some reason, that staple was absent in his most recent movie, Crawl. I haven't seen a movie he's done called Mirrors yet, but once I see that, I'll have seen all the horror he has to offer. In The Hills Have Eyes, you have a shotgun suicide, pickaxe rampage, corpse eating, finger removal with an axe, a small American flagpole stabbed through a neck, and head destruction with the pickaxe. The gore is nowhere near entertaining enough to carry this movie though. Like in the original, the dad ends up on fire, and the fire in the remake looked real CGI in parts. The skin burning shots looked okay. The acting is mediocre. Doug ends up having the most time on screen. He's played by Aaron Stanford, who did not wow me. One big gripe I had regarding the original was the look of the Hill People. In the Hills Have Eyes remake, the Hill People are deformed as a result of nuclear testing. The Hill People definitely look better in the remake. The makeup effects are solid. They actually look like what you'd expect strange, inbred Hill People to look like. CGI was used to make the children look weirder, and it actually worked. The sexual violence is front and center in the remake instead of implied. A scene of a hill person drinking milk from the mom that just had a baby is also added. 
for no reason other than shock. That prolonged sexual violence and milky addition don't add anything of value to the movie. They make it worse. Ruby doesn't even wield a rattlesnake as a weapon in the remake. The sound design is bad. The foley footsteps in the desert are overbearing and don't fit half the time. The score is one of the worst I've ever heard. I swear that part of it was stolen from the 2000s Ripley's Believe It or Not show. I don't recommend checking out the Hills Have Eyes remake. It didn't add anything that makes it more worth your time than the original. You're better off watching the original if you are dead set on watching a Hills Have Eyes movie. I personally recommend watching Wrong Turn instead. Number 4, Necrotronic, 2018, directed by Kia Roche-Turner. A dude named Howard, who grew up a foster kid, finds out he's a demon fighter known as a necromancer. His real mom, Finnegan, is alive and her soul is corrupted by demons. Finnegan killed Howard's dad and a bunch of other necromancers. Howard works with his friend Rangi, who's brought back as a ghost by Howard after he dies, and two necromancer sisters, Molly and Torkel, to defeat Finnegan. Finnegan and her demon-possessed goons are the killers. I had high hopes for this movie after watching the proof-of-concept short Demon Runner that the Roche-Turner brothers put together. I had already seen their first feature, Wormwood Road of the Dead, and even though I remember it being far from perfect, I do recall it being full of heart and fun. Here's the IMDB premise for Necrotronic. A man discovers that he is part of a secret sect of magical beings who hunt down and destroy demons in the internet. People fighting demons in the internet? Woo doggy, sign me up. How could that be a boring slog of a time? I don't know. Maybe if at least 30 minutes of the movie is spent dumping exposition and another 40 minutes is taken up by the characters acting all sad and serious. I'll give Necrotronic this. There is definitely 30 minutes of enjoyment in the movie. The problem is the runtime is an hour and 40 minutes. There is so much unnecessary exposition. Necrotronic begins with a cartoon that goes over the history of the necromancers fighting the demons. The cartoon is fantastic, funny, and concise. It's really all the necessary exposition. I don't need to know about the wacky microchips that hide necromancers from Finnegan, the specifics of how a machine pulls a demon out of a box, how the demons end up in those boxes, and whatnot. What I want to see is zany cyber demon battles with over-the-top gore and humor. I don't need to know how everything works. Let's be positive for a bit, shall we? When it comes to production design, Necrotronic excels. Neat plasma guns, LED armor, and extravagant layers. There is a lot of cool stuff shown on screen. Demon Form Finnegan is absolutely incredible and deserves to be showcased in a better movie. All of the makeup effects are stellar. Ghost Bro moving around, turning into smoke, and not caring about gravity looks great. At one point, Torkel dies and is brought back with scaly skin, which gave me Mystique vibes. It's one amazing resurrection makeover that made me think to myself, I hope this doesn't awaken anything in me. Everything with post-death Torkel is delightful. How does she die? Her head explodes. Torkel and her head problems are probably the best instances of gore in the movie. 
The head explosion of her death is fantastic. Later on, Finnegan rips off Torkel's head because that poor Cabeza can't catch a break. The head rip also looks solid. Torkel's fine. She uses a nail gun to reattach that rascally dome. My problem with Necrotronic is that the creators have good ideas like the nail touch-up and literal goat bomb. It's hilarious, not disturbing. Which Finnegan blows up after putting on a raincoat and turning away. But that fun stuff is so few and far between. It's not like it's all style over substance. It's style painted over a bunch of crappy, banal writing. I don't want feel-bad-sad times in what should be a happy-happy-fun-time cyber-demon movie. The acting is fine. Monica Belushi is actually one of the weaker parts of the movie. She plays Finnegan, and I wanted oodles of more camp from that character. Everyone else is fine. It's hard to act when a movie flips from campy to serious at breakneck speeds. A character shouldn't have to have an emotional crying scene in a movie like this. To be fair, Caroline Ford, who plays Molly, acts the hell out of the emotional scenes. She's definitely the standout actor. Necrotronic would have benefited from more campiness, less sadness. Due to long stretches of boredom that stems from pointless exposition and overly serious scenes, I regret to inform you that you should skip Necrotronic. It takes itself too seriously in parts, which hurts the overall experience. Check out the 4-minute action and camp-filled short Demon Runner instead. If you love zombies, look into Wormwood Road of the Dead. I'm giving that a soft recommendation since I remember having some problems with it. Number 5, Eaten Alive, 1976, directed by Toby Hooper. A prostitute named Clara leaves a brothel after being assaulted by a guy named Buck and ends up at the Starlight Hotel, which is run by a guy named Judd, who has an alligator that he says might be a crocodile. Judd attempts to force himself on Clara, which leads to him mortally wounding her and feeding her to the alligator. A couple with a daughter show up. The alligator eats their dog. Judd and the alligator kill the dad, and the wife is captured by Judd. The daughter hides under the hotel. Clara's dad and sister show up asking about her. The dad finds out about the captured woman and is killed. Buck shows up at the hotel with a girl. The alligator ends up eating him and the girl escapes. Clara's sister shows up and frees the captive woman. Judd ends up eaten by his own alligator. Judd and the alligator are the killers. The alligator is referred to as Old Croc, but I'm pretty sure it was an alligator. The movie is based on real-life serial killer Joe Ball, who was referred to as the Alligator Man. He possibly killed up to 20 women, and the bodies were allegedly disposed with the help of the six alligators he kept at his saloon, the Sociable Inn, in Elmendorf, Texas. He was born in San Antonio, like myself, and the crimes took place in Elmendorf, which is right outside of San Antonio. I don't know how I hadn't heard about him until now. I don't think I've ever been to Elmendorf. Maybe I passed through it on the way to Corpus Christi, but I doubt it. Eaten Alive is Toby Hooper's follow-up to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the most well-known horror movies of all time. People that don't even like horror have heard of it, so why have you never heard of Eaten Alive? Okay, okay, so maybe some of you listeners have heard of it, but I'd bet my bottom dollar that the majority of the general population has never heard of Eaten Alive. That's because it sucks. I don't recommend Eaten Alive. 
watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Crawl or Lake Placid instead. That's the review. You want more? Alright. Eaten Alive is a surreal mess. I'd say at least two-thirds of the movie is drowned in red lights. Why? At first I thought the harsh red lighting was specifically for the outside of the Starlight Hotel to signal that it's a hellish place. Makes sense and is actually something I dug for the first third of the movie when I thought that was the case. Then the red lighting just starts popping up everywhere. Then sometimes the outside of the hotel was lit with normal lights. There was no rhyme or reason for the lighting. Hey Bob, we need to light this scene. Where are the normal lights? I don't know, Bill, but I got these red lights here. Well, can we turn the red off? Nope, red bulbs, red weird shaped bulbs. It has to be red or nothing. Some time passes. All right, we're about two thirds of the way done now. Let's finish this. Bob, where are the red lights? Oh, those broke. I have these regular lights now. Hey, whatever, let's finish this garbage. I'm assuming that's what happened. Some familiar faces pop up in Eaten Alive. Robert England plays the douchebag Buck. Carolyn Jones plays Miss Hattie, the Madame of the Brothel. I am pretty sure makeup was applied to her face to make her appear older for some reason. She was in her 40s when Eaten Alive was filmed. A Madame can be in her 40s. We don't need Carolyn Jones to pretend she's 70. I got Tilda Swinton in Suspiria vibes, which is a bad thing, obviously. I'm still amazed when I hear people say they didn't realize Tilda Swinton was playing the old man in that movie. I could see not knowing it's her, but it's obviously not a real old man. At least fake 70-year-old Carolyn Jones's face moved. Pet warning, a cute dog is eaten by the alligator. It's hilarious. You see a terrible-looking alligator puppet thrash about with a stuffed animal dog in its mouth. A monkey also passes away randomly. I don't even know why the monkey was in the movie, but the monkey death was pretty sad. My favorite character in Eaten Alive is the little girl, not because she can act or does anything in the movie, but because her screams are funny. She always does the same short scream that's unintentionally hilarious. Her screams reminded me of that kid in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. The girl ends up crawling around beneath the hotel for a majority of the movie. I was hoping the movie would end with her down there and a sequel would be made in which she basically becomes a female Willard. There were a ton of rats down there with her. Eaten alive too, Willa and her rats. Now that's a motion picture I want a ticket for. The girl's parents show up to the hotel and her mom pulls off a wig while the dad acts like a crazy person. At first I thought the couple were criminals on the lamb, but that doesn't appear to be the case. I have no idea why the dad acts like an absolutely insane person. Surrealness over substance, I guess. I'll give the movie that. It is a very surreal movie given the crazy characters, lighting, cinematography, and experimental score. There are loads of zooms. I found the score to be one of the stronger aspects of the movie. The zooms and score really heighten a feeling of anxiety. I wish the writing and acting were stronger to capitalize on that anxious tone. Judd is played by Neville Brand, who was in a bunch of stuff back in the 50s. I'm not familiar with his other roles. I don't think he fit as Judd. Judd seemed far too clean for a dingy hotel running maniac. His hair is long, but not greasy. His clothes are well kept. 
At one point, Judd crawls under the hotel in an attempt to capture the little girl. If you were going to be in an enclosed crawl space with barely any room, what weapon would you take with you to kill a little girl? If you said a huge scythe, you're a dumb idiot like Judd. Eating Alive did teach me one thing. A scythe is a terrible weapon. At one point, the two final women are running down the stairs. Judd appears at the bottom and starts running up with the big ol' scythe. The woman should have just barreled through him since there's no way he could have gotten a good swing on them with that unwieldy grass cutter. They end up running back upstairs, but they should have just run that old kook over. As for the gore, it's fine. It's not great. It's not all that exciting, but it does its job. I talked about the alligator puppet a little. In some of the shots, it looks kind of decent, and in most shots, it looks like a cheap monstrosity. My favorite alligator shots are when it eats Buck and the Crazy Dad. The alligator looks awful in them, which makes the attacks incredibly funny. Eaten Alive is Fever Dream the movie. It's a surreal mess that's intriguing due to how bizarre it is, but I don't recommend it. Like I said at the beginning of this section, watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Crawl, or Lake Placid instead. Number 6, It Chapter 2, 2019, directed by Andy Muschietti. I feel like most people know the general story of It, but if you don't want any specific spoilers, You can skip to 39 minutes, 48 seconds. Get out of here, spoiler beard. Jeez. Security. Don't let him back in here. <sighs> anyway, we're jumping into it in 3, 2, 1. Ben, Bev, Bill, Eddie, Mike, and Richie join forces once again in Derry after it reappears 27 years after the first defeat. Stanley takes his own life instead of going back to Derry. Once in Derry, the losers split up to relive trauma and find tokens needed for a ritual Mike found out about that will defeat it once and for all. It kills more people, including a kid which makes Ben head to its location. The rest of the crew shows up and they all journey to the spot where it originally landed on Earth. The losers complete the ritual, which doesn't work. Eddie throws a fence post at it and thinks it has been killed. It kills Eddie. The rest of the losers band together to make it who's now a giant spider creature thing, smaller by literally belittling it. Once small, Mike takes out its heart and the losers crush it together. Everyone but Eddie lives happily ever after. It and it-controlled Henry Bowers are the killers. It releases Bowers from an asylum. Bowers kills some orderlies during the escape. His character is inconsequential in the second movie it says kiss me fat boy 10 out of 10 run to the theaters now number seven wait let me let me talk more about it part two. First off the delivery of kiss me fat boy is terrible it said kind of like kiss me fat boy at least it made it into the movie i guess it chapter two aka jump scare the movie is three hours of goofy goofy laugh balls. Before I go on a mini rant here, or yeah, it's probably just gonna be a rant, I enjoyed it overall and recommend it. 
I do have some big issues with the movie, though. Like the first movie, It Chapter 2 is littered with the most obnoxious, obvious jump scares in modern horror. I was able to literally count down all but one of the jump scares. I will give kudos for the one decent jump scare, which is when the Paul Bunyan statue comes out of nowhere. Well, not nowhere. We all know the statue is going to attack Richie in some way, but I did not expect it to sneak up on him. All of the other jump scares are your typical silence, then loud, startling noise. A lot of the jump scares also did the quick zoom into the monster while it barrels into the camera thing. Like the one everyone remembers in the first movie where IT is in Bill's flooded basement. IT Chapter 2 isn't scary at all, but it is startling. I take that back, there is one truly scary scene in IT 2, that's right at the beginning. An openly gay couple is savagely beaten by a group of hate-filled bigots. After the beating, the bigots throw one of the victims over a bridge and leave him for dead. That was the most horrific sequence in the entire movie because of how based in reality it feels. I hear that was taken directly from the book and that scene truly is the most terrifying part of this whole three hour movie. CGI monsters are nowhere near as scary as real life hatred. I've seen a lot of people dogging the CGI in IT too. I'm normally one of the first people to call out bad CGI, but I thought a lot of the CGI looked good in it. Paul Bunyan, Bowers' zombie accomplice, Stanley's the thing head, fortune cookie baby bug monster, sweet tooth Bev, and Pennywise overall looked great. I think some practical effects were definitely used in tandem with some of those examples. There is some bad CGI like the naked grandma who was played by the Blair Witch. I'm glad that she's getting more work. If you've seen the trailers, you've seen the grandma that turns into the naked grandma lanky ass tall CGI gaff. I don't think the creators meant for the naked grandma to come off as hilariously stupid as it ended up being. The whole scene where the actual lady walks goofily behind Bev is definitely the funniest part in the entire movie. I love the awkward flail walk that the grandma and Pennywise do. Other iffy CGI is the leper. The leper just doesn't feel remotely real. That's all I really have to say on the CGI. Oh, one last thing. I didn't notice any of the de-aging on the kids. Back to ranting. 99% of the time a serious moment happened where the audience should be soaking in the gravity of the situation or feel despair due to what's being shown. A terrible out of place attempt at humor was forced in. I felt like I was watching a Marvel movie or something. Bowers is about to murder Mike, so Richie plants a hatchet in the back of Bowers' head, killing him. Richie then makes a joke instantly after taking a life? Eddie is dying and asks to speak to Richie. I would have liked a nice touching I love you man, but instead we get the third I banged your mom joke of the movie. It might have been the fourth. I didn't know anyone over the age of 16 still made I banged your mom jokes. The back and forth between Eddie and Richie just felt forced and unnatural at times. I can somewhat understand Richie constantly cracking jokes, but Eddie is right there with him. 
When the characters are in legitimate peril, I don't want sophomoric jokes carelessly thrown about. The humor ended up killing a lot of the tension in the movie. This brings me to the biggest fail at humor in the entire movie. Eddie starts choking out the leper. He's showing growth and overcoming the fear he had as a child where he left his mother to be attacked by the leper. It wasn't his real mom, obviously, but he didn't know that when he was a kid. While he's strangling the leper as an adult, the leper projectile vomits into Eddie's face. As a brief five seconds of Angel of the Morning is played, before cutting out as the leper continues to vomit on Eddie for at least five more seconds sans the music. It felt like something taken straight out of the Deadpool movies. It's okay to have some serious moments in your horror movie that aren't broken up by goofy goofy laugh balls humor. If you even think about disputing this criticism with Pennywise is a clown so it makes sense. No it doesn't. None of the things I just mentioned involve Clown Pennywise attempting to be funny. I'm all for Pennywise going for disturbing comedy in clown form. I was not a fan of the overall nonchalantness during a lot of the serious sequences. It's like Richie and Eddie are in a completely different movie or something. That's it. That's what bothered me. The acting is solid, the standouts are definitely James McAvoy as Ben and Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise. All the others are strong. The kids do have a much bigger part in It Part 2 than they had in the second half of the Made for TV series. The kids were great again. I did like Bill Hader and Finn Wolfhard as Richie and James Ranson and Jack Dylan Grazer as Eddie. I do think the dialogue for those characters is completely overwritten. The actors did what they could with what they were given. Young and old Eddie and Ben have some insane resemblance. As far as the ending goes, I didn't mind the change. It's much better than the miniseries in which the losers literally kick stop motion spider it to death. I haven't read the book, but I looked at a summary of the book ending. I feel like the book ending could be done justice and would have been neater if executed correctly. But the ending of part two is fine. Unlike what seems like everyone else, I never felt the runtime. I was entertained throughout. It's cool that the movie continued to show kids actually die since you rarely ever see that. I don't remember being disturbed by any of the gore outside of the hate crime, but the gore is decent. I couldn't suspend my disbelief when everyone answered their phones right away. You know that in real life, everyone would have let that unknown number go to voicemail. I'm kidding here. This isn't an actual nitpick. I know that the losers probably felt some weird compulsion to answer. Also, it's a good thing all of them have decent jobs and can get time off at the drop of a hat. Josh, you gotta come back to Derry. It's back. Sorry, Mike. I already used all my time off and I don't have the money for a last minute flight to Maine right now. I know that I complained a lot in this section, but I enjoyed IT Chapter 2. It has a bunch of neat creature designs, some interesting cosmic horror set pieces like the Deadlights, some great acting and chemistry amongst the returning children and new adults, and it did in fact say, kiss me fat boy, even though the inflection was completely off. I definitely recommend checking out IT Chapter 2. I'm just stupid tired of the obnoxious jump scares and the new trend of completely out of place comedy in movies. 
Oh, and I love the Stephen King cameo. Number seven, Carnival Row, 2019 to, who knows, created by Renee Echevarria and Travis Beecham. I have only seen three episodes of Carnival Row so far, so this is going to be an early thoughts rambling. You might be wondering why I'm even covering Carnival Row on this horror-themed podcast. Welp, the gore. The gore in Carnival Row is some of the gnarliest I've seen in recent times. The show isn't littered with gore, but when it's shown, it's incredibly done and disturbing. The one gore scene I'll call out specifically is one disemboweled body that is showcased at the beginning of the second episode. The gore for the body with its intestines pulled way out of the torso looks better than most gore in recent big budget horror movies. I've been impressed by the originals Amazon has been popping out. I'm not even sure why Amazon is dumping this much money into these shows. I feel like everyone I know already had Amazon Prime just for shipping and we all got a bunch of neat shows as a free added bonus. I know that I'm still technically paying for it though through my Amazon Prime subscription, but I signed up for Prime before dope shows were part of the deal. Good Omens, The Boys, and now Carnival Row are the only shows I've checked out so far, but I recommend all of them. The Boys has a bunch of great super power-based gore. The writing in that show has some blatant issues though. I'm amazed at the quality of these Amazon shows. No, I'm not sponsored by them. You listeners know this is a poverty podcast. I'm not telling you to subscribe to Prime for these shows, but if you happen to already have Prime, why not peek at them? Back to loosely focusing on Carnival Row. The show is set in a Victorian period of another world where there are different races like fairies, boring humans, ram people, and kobolds. Orlando Bloom plays a detective He's fine, I guess, even though I don't think he really fits as the character that's basically Dirty Harry Light. Cara Delevingne has surprised me with her acting as the main protagonist fairy of the series. The only other thing I saw her in was Suicide Squad, which I saw the first third of at a bar on mute. I wasn't impressed, but I think Suicide Squad made everyone but Margot Robbie look bad. The design work of the different races and settings is intricate and amazing. Practical makeup effects and prosthetics are used for the fairies and ram people and it all looks great. I especially like the design of the fortune teller witch characters. I'm having fun with the show even though I think some of the plot is stupid. Consider checking out Carnival Row. Blank is the killer, 53 killer seekers, internet demons, and cosmic clowns has come to an end. If you dug it, leave a rating on iTunes. Email me at blankisthekiller at gmail.com about anything you want. Or just tell a friend about the podcast. As always, thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast so it pops up everywhere. Episode 54 should be out on September 22nd. That being said, I'm attending Fantastic Fest for the first time this year, which runs from September 19th through the 26th. 54 should be a normal episode. 55, on the other hand, will be a weird, experimental, fantastic fest recap episode. So look forward to that. Episode 54 should be out on September 22nd. Episode 54 will be out on September 22nd. I haven't ever missed an episode, and I'm not starting now. I'll talk at y'all then. I have to go bully this clown.